Hello, everyone. My name's Jack Fernan, and this is Exploring Existence, the podcast that looks at the teachings and practices of the world's religions through the lens of personal experiences. Today on the podcast, I spoke with Father Michael Tate, who is currently a Catholic parish priest in Tasmania. Father Tate has lived a life that has traversed two paths, the law and the church, but both have been built on a dedication to following the Holy Spirit. Before becoming a priest at the spring age of 55, Father Tate was a professor of Australian constitutional law at the University of Tasmania. He then ran for political office, becoming a senator for Tasmania and the Australian government minister for justice in the Hawke government. After his time in Parliament, Father Tate continued to pursue his passions and was appointed as the Australian Ambassador to the Vatican and the Netherlands. In our conversation, we explored what has driven Father Tate to pursue his various vocations and the guiding hand that God has played in his journey. We talked about his commitment to non-violence and a society of redistributed wealth and the importance of being open to listening to the Holy Spirit and following its path. Father Tate also has several fascinating and unique stories, including having to learn ancient Greek in order to study theology at Oxford, his painful decision on how to vote in Parliament regarding the First Gulf War, and his meeting with the Dalai Lama and, of course, Pope John Paul II. Now, for those of you who are not as familiar with the Australian political system, the Liberal Party in Australia, which we mentioned in our conversation, is the party that is ideologically right of centre while the Labor Party, which is the party that Father Tate joined, is the party that is left of centre. We also spoke of the Hawke government that was led by Bob Hawke from 1983 to 1991. Before getting started, a quick reminder about our website. Two weeks ago, we published an article on the anniversary of the death of the Bab, which if you want to know more about that, then head over to exploringexistence.org and you can check it out there. And also, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for upcoming episodes. And so, everyone, thank you for joining us, including this lovely bird outside, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Father Michael Tate, thank you very much for coming on the podcast with me today. At the moment, your primary role is as a a priest in Tasmania. What what parish are you uh, involved in? South Hobart, underneath the mountain, between the Derwent River and the mountain, if some of your listeners can visualise that. So, you know, it's a lovely little parish nestled in the foothills of Mount Wellington. So, Father, you've um, had a, a long, distinguished and interesting career. But starting from your your origins, re- reading sort of your biography and that before coming into this in- interview, it seems that Catholicism has been a guiding part of uh, your career. Has Was Catholicism a part of your life from, from the very beginning? Well, I was brought up in, a, in Hobart, which was fairly tribal, in the 1950s, 60s, uh, you know, the Catholics and the Protestants, it was still fairly much you know, a, a way to characterise society in Hobart and Tasmania. So I went to a Christian Brothers school. So the tribal identity was very strong, and I came up, you know, through a through a Catholic family, uh, practicing Catholic family. So Catholicism really was just part of who you were. It was unreflecting in a way. But then uh, I studied law, uh, didn't go into that too much, but did reasonably well and therefore got a scholarship to Oxford to study the BCL, the Bachelor of Civil Law at Oxford. When I got there, I asked my tutor in in law, uh, Mr Reynolds, 
who edited the Law Quarterly Review, I said to him, look, I'm happy to do the BCL, but would it be possible for me to study theology? Because I was caught up in the Vatican II enthusiasm. This was 1968. He said, well, Mr. Tate, I'd hate to lose you, but we're here to foster your intellectual development if that's what you want to do. So he called the theology dynamite college and he came across and over a glass of dry sherry, uh, I was transferred from one faculty to the other. You know, it's very unbureaucratic. And that began the adventure because, of course, I, I was the first Catholic, according to my tutor, uh, lay person, first Catholic lay person, to study the BA in theology since the Reformation, which is such a good story, I've never checked on it. <laughs> but it was great, and um, but of course I was terribly ignorant. So just to give you an example, I went down to his rooms, the theology don, and he said, well, Mr. Tate, um, you don't have to study the Old Testament in the original, but the New Testament, of course, in the original language. And uh, in my Catholic schoolboy ignorance, I said, well, that's all right. Uh, I've got matric Latin. Well, I looked past over his face, and I thought, what have I said? What's wrong? He said, well, Mr. Tate, you might find that some of the more original manuscripts are written in Greek. Well, I nearly died of embarrassment, of course. <laughs> And he refused to, you know, he said, well, we don't teach Greek. I mean, here's a couple of grammar books. You've got one and a half terms to, to get on top of that. Start with St. John's Gospel because it's got the easiest vocabulary. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, you know. And that was it. But that was the launching into an intellectual ferment because at Oxford, they concentrated on the scriptures and the first 400 years of church history, scripture and patristics. And for me, of course, as a naive young Catholic boy from South Hobart, uh, it was a complete uh, intellectual and religious revolution. Uh, I say revolution because the turning point came when I was translating St. Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, and I came to that passage where uh, our Lord says, well, uh, our Heavenly Father allows the sun to rise and the rain to fall on evil and good men alike, on just and unjust men alike. Be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. And it struck me that if, if God doesn't withdraw his creative powers, sun, rain, from people depending on whether they're good or bad or evil or good, much less does he deliberately set out to kill them, then I had to take the step of declaring myself to be a Christian pacifist, uh, particularly as in finishing Be Perfect as Your Heavenly Father is Perfect, which I'd always thought of in rather moralistic terms. But when you actually read the Greek, it's like a very good wine. Uh, you know, like a, a perfect wine is one that's full-bodied, matured over the years, has everything you would want that wine to be. So really, our Lord is saying, you have to be everything as a human being. 
you are meant to be. It may take time, you may have to mature. Uh, God is, is, Pope Francis constantly says, uh, God is patient, we are the impatient ones. So it may take time. So the point is, uh, I, I was just struck by this passage. I sometimes put it, revelation can be revolution. And for me, it changed me from being a rather conservative person who had voted in favour of the Vietnam War. Uh, and I came from a liberal voting family. And suddenly I thought, well, no, this, I can't back this anymore. I've got to change my whole political outlook. But I did it under the influence of Martin Luther King, because he was virtually contemporary of being assassinated. There he was deliberately as a political strategy uh, because of his total commitment to that aspect of Christianity. He took the Sermon on the Mount. He took non-violent political activism as, as the key to his taking on the demonic features of segregation in the southern states of the United States. There's remnants of slavery, which, of course, we can still see manifested today. So I went to Blackwell's. Um, got a poster, black and white poster of Martin Luther King, uh, got it framed, and I've got it here, but of course your, your, your hearers can't see it, and it's hung above my desk, working desk, every day since then. You've got to have a hero. I think you've got to have somebody who you think has stretched beyond the norm, and because it was in deference to the Sermon on the Mount, I found Martin Luther King the very appropriate uh, hero for me to, to follow. All I'm saying is, by taking a risk changing from law to theology, I found the point at which the creative spiritual force, we call God, breaking through into my life through that particular passage in Scripture. It does mean I've become a fundamentalist in a bad sense, but it, do mean, it does mean that, you know, the scriptures undoubtedly can uh, work to transform somebody's lives if, if you're open to it. So that was my unexpected uh, entry into uh, theology, which then led to, when I came back to Australia, I was lecturing in the law faculty at the University of Tasmania. Some of my students in second year Australian constitutional law, were still subject to conscription to the war in Vietnam. And I remember sitting around the big radio at one of the university colleges, St John Fisher College, seeing the blood drain from the face of one of my students as his birth date was called out. There were, I think, 180 marbles put in a barrel six months' worth of birth dates that are twirled around like lotto. And if your marble was called out, uh, that was, you were conscripted or subject to conscription. Uh, at, that, at that time, only total pacifism was recognised for exemption purposes, whereas most Australians of any faith, particularly the Catholic variety anyway, distinguish between a just and an unjust war. So this young fellow, for example, along with hundreds of others, would have said, 
I'm prepared to defend Australia against an unjust aggressor, but I'm not prepared to go to Vietnam. Well, that wasn't a sufficient plea to get an exemption. So I thought, okay, I've got to enter politics and try and change this. So reading that passage some years before at Oxford led me to switch from, you know, a general conservative outlook to having to join the Labour Party as the major political force opposing uh, the war in Vietnam, or at least certainly conscription into it. When you uh, went from, just going back a bit to your transition from law to theology, it's such an interesting transition because especially with uh, Catholicism, people to talk about church law. And um, I think for, for, for most people, that's what? just a, a, a black box of um, the that priests and, and bishops and, and popes sort of reach into and try and deduce principles from. But it's it is a it is a different system than the uh the law yeah. system that we're used to. What what I took away from the Oxford experience, of course, my my the best lecturers, or the only lecturers, and, and tutors were of course Anglican or Congregationalist or Presbyterian. So it broke open my Catholic uh, inward-looking sort of Christianity and exposed me to the best possible scholarship by these outstanding teachers and lecturers. And how could I not be ecumenical after that? You know, it, it was just my experience of other wonderful Christians deeply immersed in the subjects I was interested in, uh, whether it was Scripture or Irenaeus or Athanasius or somebody like that. Um, so, you know, I, I, I thank them every day for their opening my mind to the treasures of the first 400 years of church history. So you, you were talking about getting into politics and that movement of nonviolence as being the inspiring force that, that got you into it. And conscription in those days was really the one of the big uh, ethical e ethical issues in society. You had you had folks like John Zarb, I think it was, who was the first person to, to go to prison based on yeah. conscientious objection. Well, that's the whole point. Conscientious objection of the general Quaker type was recognised. But from, as I said before, for most young Australians... The magistrate only had to say, well, would you defend Australia against an invader? They'd say, yes. Would you go to war to defend Australia? Yes. And you lost your conscientious ob objection status because you went for what they called selective conscientious objection, saying that some wars are just, some are unjust. So I, I de definitely entered politics. It's in my maiden speech, really, for a couple of reasons. But the main one propelling me to declare myself, because teaching Australian constitutional law, I was very careful never to say anything political. I tried to teach it as a, as a subject. But once I declared myself and went for the election within the Labor Party, pre-selection and then election, I set that as my goal and it took 15 years in the parliament before the law was changed to recognise selective conscientious objection to a particular war. So 
Anyway, that's another story. Yeah, it wasn't until um, I think 1992 until they brought in that law, which is well after Vietnam. It it took me constant effort in Labor Party forums, uh, uh, Senate committees. Um, I mean, there were strong forces in Australia opposed to changing. The RSL at that time particularly strongly. And, of course, they're very influential work. So it took a long time until Robert Ray, the then Minister for Defence, lived had an office in the corridor. He was just opposite me in the ministerial room at the new Parliament House. Anyway, he burst into my room and said, oh, we're going to change the, I think it's the war, not the War Act, the War Services Act or something, a Defence Act, I suppose, uh, to allow for conscientious objection to a particular war. So that was the end of 15 years of struggle, which is one of the things I think which people have to understand. They can be extremely critical of politicians who don't achieve what they voted them in for immediately. But there's a process, there's an art, there's a there's a there's a craft to being a politician and you know gathering the support of colleagues and perhaps some support across the chamber, but even of colleagues, it takes time, it takes effort, it takes persevering. It's the grace of perseverance, I think, which is which is what's needed in, in political life. And so throughout your political career, um, were, there, were there other sort of uh, yeah. things that you took on? I'll come, to my, I'll come to my portfolios in a moment. But the other big factor leading me into politics was I'd had a very bad car accident when I was in first year law at UTAS, putting on my back for seven months or something. And then again at Oxford it recurred, and I had orthopaedic surgery there. And the difference was that mum and dad were bankrupted by my hospital care and medical care in Hobart, even though they were on the top of uh, the table in their in their health fund, uh, whereas in England the National Health Scheme treated me for nothing, best possible care in Oxford. So that shattered all the ideology which I had absorbed. You know, the National Health Scheme was a terrible thing. So when I came back to Australia, one of the things that led me into the Labor Party was precisely to try to change something towards what became Medicare. Interestingly enough. <coughs> Uh, the man who uh, was a self-proclaimed atheist humanist, Bill Hayden, was really the architect of Medicare, uh, a man I hugely respected, respect. And what he was doing really, to my mind, uh, I, I linked to uh, St Matthew's account of the Last Judgment, St Matthew chapter 25. For example, he says, I was sick and you helped to heal me, or I was sick and you gave me a glass of water. I forget the exact words. But certainly sort of one of the rather individual basis. But the thing about politics is you can take those religious injunctions, if you like, and create it, do something on the, on the large scale, on the huge scale. I mean, in the Acts of the Apostles, we read that uh, people were so taken up in the, in, in the dynamism following from the resurrection and the Pentecost, 
that they shared their goods in common. Uh, they brought their, their, sold their properties and brought the proceeds to the apostles to be distributed to those in need, in need, uh, which was all very well and did make a huge impact in the Roman Empire, which had nothing like that operating. But wouldn't be fantastic to create, you know, a social security system or a healthcare system on the large scale so that the whole of, of uh, society was transformed. And uh, anyway, Bill Hayden did that. He created Medicare. And do you know, about a year ago, I attended his baptism. Oh, really? Yeah, it's up in Ipswich. Really? Did Bill he's Hayden now, get He's now an elderly gentleman, of course, in a, in, in a wheelchair because he had something of a stroke. But he had been brought up in a Catholic family but never baptised. I don't know the family dynamics. And he proclaimed himself to be, a, uh, as I say, an atheistic humanist, but a wonderful, wonderful man. But during his great fight to establish Medicare, there was a sister at the Mater Hospital in Brisbane who became his greatest supporter against very conservative political and medical echelon forces, particularly in Queensland. And um, he's remained, you know, very good friends with her over the years. She was very ill a couple of years ago, so he visited her, at the suppose, at the Mater Hospital. He came away and he said, the next morning, I thought, I've been in the presence of a saint. I've got to, I've got to really pursue this. I've got to follow this up. And he did, and I went up to his baptism at Ipswich. Um, See, God works in, in mysterious ways, and it may not always be through some self-proclaimed champion of Christianity or Catholicism or evangelical fundamentalism or something. The Holy Spirit, of course, can take hold of anyone and prompt them in the direction which the Holy Spirit wants for God's plan for humanity and the cosmos to be realised. And uh, Bill Hayden was a very good example of that. Uh, but, of course, that brings me back to another point. I said that I was broken out of my Catholic shell by the experience in Oxford, at least to other denominations within the Christian religion. But, of course, what I've just recited reminds me, of course, that Catholicism teaches that there's no salvation outside the action of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that, that he's the fundamental um, embodiment of God's saving and healing power for the whole of humanity. But there are many people outside the Catholic and or Christian sphere who will never know about the gospel. You know, the billions in villages in India or China, just to take two examples, they would never hear the gospel. And Catholicism teaches that the Holy Spirit can reach them, prompt them to live a good life. And, you know, if a, if a, a labourer in China moves into the town to get work, sends money back to his dear parents back in the village, tries to lead a good life, tries to reject corruption when it's, you know, perhaps around him, etc., etc., that person can be embraced by the saving power of God.
And, you know, we've got to do our best to try to get the gospel to various people, peoples, but God works outside our particular mechanisms. And when they don't reach out, the Holy Spirit can still be at work in that person's heart. And, of course, we make ourselves less attractive too at times. most extreme example, of course, is the conquest of Central and South America by Spanish and Portuguese forces, which came with military force, disease and enslavement for those peoples. Anyone who's seen the mission, seen that marvellous film? Yeah, yeah. Morricone, the, 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 the great uh, Italian uh, composer of the theme music for that, died only last week. All right. Yeah, yeah. G- Gabriel's flute, is it? The, the fantastic, you must play it on your podcast as a theme for this. Yeah. I played it, it my ordination. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. The fact is that uh, the confrontation of the gospel with the people, the indigenous people, meant that it wasn't heard. The gospel wasn't what was How can you accept the gospel when it comes, you know, with, with, with uh, terrible massacres and, and, as I say, enslavement of these peoples? Has the church itself, in a, in a less dramatic fashion, also disabled itself at the moment in Australian society from being you know, an attractive, credible uh, preacher of the gospel? You know, the church itself has to present itself in the guise, it, I, don't mean the dis, I don't mean the disguise, but in the guise of true followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when it abandons that, as has happened, you know, the whole abuse scandal, um, it, it makes it very hard to, to preach the gospel. And therefore, the Holy Spirit has to work outside uh, the mechanisms of the church institution. Yeah. How did we get onto that? I don't know. Uh, we were talking about Bill Hayden and how he oh, was. Yeah, right, okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Transformation uh, of Australian society in a way which they attempted in a small way in the decades following the resurrection of Pentecost, as recorded in the Acts of the Apostles, but which he put on a large scale so that the injunction in Matthew 25, or or the commentary that uh, I was hungry and you gave me some food, I needed shelter, you gave me shelter, I was sick and you visited me. We now have a social structure in Australia, which on the whole tries to do those things. I'm just justifying my entry into politics, to do things on the big scale, you know. And, and when you got into politics, you took up various positions and, and got yourself into various roles that, from from the outsider at least, looked like you were really trying to pursue that sort of agenda. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, well I did. And particularly then when I became a minister, the big picture... This is Paul Keating's phrase, you see. He always reminded us of the big picture. We have to pursue the big picture. And so, you know, as Minister for Justice, I thought you'd be interested. This is a lawyer. I, I really brought in the, well, the, the, I'll start with the federal police. Uh, when I took up that portfolio, a general from the United Kingdom was in charge of the first attempt to amalgamate the ACT police and a few federal police around Australia into one force. 
I appointed the first Australian Commissioner of the Australian Federal Police and tried to form it into what has become, I think, you know, a very good organisation on the whole. But that, that, that opportunity to, um, uh, to create something which has an Australia-wide impact uh, is really what politics is about. That's the thrill of being in federal politics. Class actions in the federal court, I, I brought that in, basically, which has made millions for lawyers, of course. Um, <laughs> but apart from that, one hopes has also transformed the way in which uh, people can see redress when something goes wrong at a corporate or institutional level and they can take you know, class action in, in the federal system. I mean, they're just a couple of examples. There'd be many others. The most extraordinary one, do you want to hear that? Yeah, of course. Okay. Um, at one stage, the Minister for Immigration, Jerry Hand, was completely tied up with dealing with a few, relatively, uh, refugees arriving by boat on the north or northwest coasts of Australia. So he was tied up in that. So then Prime Minister Bob Hawke asked me to take over the Immigration and Ethnic Affairs portfolio insofar as it was within Australia, not protecting the borders, but once people got in. So that included citizenship. And I discovered to my interest that many Australian permanent residents were not taking up citizenship, particularly from Ireland, because of having to swear allegiance to Her Majesty, the Queen of Australia, her heirs and successors according to law. Uh, but in any case, the Republican movement was beginning to, that was in the air. And, of course, then Paul Keating was really strong on that. So I thought, well, I wonder if there's an opportunity to change the Pledge of Allegiance. So I worked on that and got lots of drafts from the department. I got one from Australia's leading poet, Les Murray, which was not so wonderful for public recitation. It's interesting. You've got to have something that can be recited by a person to make an individual commitment, but also able to be recited by 300 people in a town hall. Yeah. And the poetry and the way of doing that, quite difficult to, to achieve. I, in fact, I went up to see Les Murray uh, and flew in a small aircraft from Sydney Airport uh, to wherever he was, uh, not the far out back of New South Wales, but a country town. Met him, I think, at the airport. Yeah, we, we met somewhere and had a chat about it all. Uh, so, so it wasn't taken much by his draft, but he emphasised, you must, he said, use the word share. Sharing is an important part of Aboriginal culture, part of his cultural background. Perhaps he was Irish, I don't know. But he said, use that verb, share. So anyway, coming back, I was writing furiously on yellow writing pad um, in the aircraft and came up with, um, how's it start? I sort of pledged my allegiance to Australia and its people. Australia and its people. Whose rights and liberties I respect. Whose democratic values I share 
and whose laws I will uphold and obey. I think I've got that right. It's, it's, but anyway, that's fantastic. Well, I'll just say it is a fantastic thought, <laughs> to put it objectively, Your Honour. It is a fantastic thought that hundreds of thousands of, Aust of now Australian citizens have recited the words which I wrote. And honestly, if I miss anything in politics, it's the power. It's the power to transform, you know, to do something worthwhile, to do something that can actually uh, mean something in the big picture of Australia in this case. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I enjoyed my time in the ministry until near the end. You want to go through that sad story? Yeah. We'll take yeah. you back to Oxford. All right. In, I think it was early, uh, was it 1991, Saddam Hussein of Iraq invaded Kuwait, a very, very small but uh, oil-rich little country, nation, uh, adjacent to Iraq. And uh, the United Nations Security Council and the Arab League tried to get him out, but he wouldn't budge. The question arose whether Australia should participate in a UN-led force to dislodge him as an unjust aggressor into this small nation, Kuwait. Bob Hawke announced that we would send, I think, a couple of uh, naval vessels to assist. That was on a Thursday or something. He wanted a vote in the parliament on the following Monday or Tuesday. Uh, so I went back home to Hobart and I was, I was absolutely torn apart. This was the crunch. I patted myself on the back, you know, as a Christian pacifist. As somebody committed to following our Lord Jesus Christ and not offering armed resistance, lethal force against an enemy. Uh, I had a talk to Dad who'd been in the Middle East during the Second World War fighting against, you know, the Nazi German machine in North Africa, uh, which on Catholic analysis would certainly be a just war. Uh, and I, I, I was absolutely torn apart. But I thought, well, he was an unjust aggressor taking innocent human lives in Kuwait. We've got to stand between him and the innocent and repel him. And if that takes lethal force, I could, I could, I could go along with that. So I got up in the Senate and, and said, well, you know, I, I, can, I will support it, but I feel that I'm in the same grip of the same diabolical force which has motivated or, or repelled Saddam Hussein to carry out this terrible invasion so cruelly. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm perhaps taken up in that same diabolical miasma or something. But I voted for it and my heart broke. 
I went back to my office, turned the photo of Martin Luther King to the wall. I could not bear his eyes gazing down on me, you know, virtually accusing me, and with some justice, of betraying our Lord in the, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, and him, you know, as the personification of him, I'd always held up as my hero. And it wasn't for another six or eight months that I could turn that photo around when Robert Ray said he would amend the uh, Defence Act to allow for selective conscientious objection. So I felt I was I'm sort of some sort of coming back to what what had led me into politics from the Sermon on the Mount. So there we are. That's the. But by then, probably I was beginning to exhaust my political life. I didn't realise it so much, but Paul Keating did. (laughs) (laughs) And he decided that uh, uh, he wanted somebody else to be Minister for Justice. So I accepted that after his great victory in 1993. And I was terribly disappointed. I mean, I was devastated. But still, you've got to pick up and, and look to the future. So you know, I went back to him and said, well, I don't want to sit on the back bench. It's too humiliating. And, and too, um, you know, you can become bitter and twisted. It should be yeah. no use to him or to, or to the Labor Party. Yeah, you can stew on the back bench like uh, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. in the past. So I said, um, my two great interests are the law and and the church, how about the Hague and the Holy See, ambassador to the Netherlands and to the Vatican? He said, well, go away and have a chat to Gareth Evans about it, see what's possible. So my next phase was as ambassador to the Netherlands, which is virtually, the, for me, the Hague, which is the, the centre of international law, and, and the Vatican. Yeah. Before we move on to that, that next step, coming back to your vote to support the first Gulf War, are you, with the the grand benefit of hindsight, are you still, are you are you happy with that decision that you no, made? No, 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 I'm very unhappy. In Catholic terms, if I ever committed a mortal sin, that was it. You know, I mean, some things are categorised as mortal sins, which you know, not, but. To consciously decide on a course of action which you know in your heart is contrary to what our Lord taught and practiced against the Roman occupying army. Uh, that to me, that, that's the essence of what you know a real sin is, that you, that you consciously go against what you know to be. My only consolation has been that when Pope John Paul II wrote his encyclical Evangelium Vitae, uh, the Gospel of Life, if ever there was a Pope of great certainties, it's the Polish Pope John Paul II. But he actually is in anguish and, and over this whole question of being a disciple of Jesus Christ and yet protecting the innocent. And he can't resolve it. 
It's left unresolved. He said it's, I don't have his exact language, but more or less, it's a dilemma for a Christian disciple. And, but nevertheless, of course, he and his successors have restricted more and more the criteria which can allow for the prosecution of a war of defence, even. In fact, in the Catechism, the term just war is dropped and relegated to the small print of a footnote. So, you know, the church is moving in that direction. But, you know, there are some dreadful instances where defence of the innocent against the unjust aggressor may involve the use of lethal force. But in the meantime, having done that, you're then conscious of of sin. Yeah. Yeah, because, as you say, the, the concept of just war, it used to be so predominant in church teaching and it was used to justify so many uh, explorations into the Middle East and obviously yeah. the Crusade sort of built off that whole notion. But there's those two sides of both the gospel and that real adherence to nonviolence, which is ultimately a principle that can't really be undermined in any way, shape or form. Nonviolence is nonviolence. And yeah. then you get figures such as, as Gandhi and Martin Luther King that can show the power of, of that nonviolence, which initially seemed to be... Uh, not which initially seemed to be powerless. If if you're nonviolent, you can just be trampled over by by the unjust aggressor. And do you think it's figures like Gandhi, like Martin Luther King, that have shown the church in the modern age the real power of those uh, nonviolent teachings that have made it rethink its reliance on and theological justification of the just war? Yeah. Can I just say in self-defence of my own <laughs> decision back then, I have reflected on this. Now, Martin Luther King at least had the support of the federal government in the United States. You know, the Kennedys were on side. Gandhi, yes, non-violence, but it was against a declining British empire. Neither of them was up against a regime like North Korea or, or China, you know, or Saddam Hussein's Iraq. Iraq, yeah, yeah, back, back at that time. Now disintegrating, of course. So, um, yes, they are, I mean, a, a, another person acting under religious impulse, of course, is the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama fled Tibet when the Chinese moved there army in as an occupying army, and they wreaked havoc in, in Tibet uh, with the culture and the people and make it a Chinese province. But he preaches nonviolence. Don't take up armed struggle against the Chinese occupying forces. And when you read and hear what he says, it's just like our Lord in relation to the Roman occupying army. And perhaps, as with our Lord, there's a certain element of a certain element of political realism that either the Roman occupying army will destroy you if you rebel, which they did, AD 70, destroying Jerusalem, or you know, an overwhelming force as in Tibet. But beyond the political calculation, there is this sense that 
I'll, use, I'll quote Pope John Paul II again. He describes a human being as formed from the dust, but a breath of God. I forget the exact term, but, you know, if you've got a high understanding of what a human being is, then to destroy this creature, a human being, is so contrary to the will of the Creator that uh, you, you can't do it for whatever reason. So he wouldn't be able to put it in those terms, wouldn't want to put it in those terms. But no doubt the Dalai Lama is acting under, in my view, the impulse of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit, uh, in, in relation to his injunction to his followers not to practice violence. You want me to tell you the story of how I made the Dalai Lama cry? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay, we're a little bit off track, but no, I'm slightly exaggerating. But the Dalai Lama came to visit Australia at some stage. I was on the back bench. Uh, he couldn't be received by the Australian government because of pressure from the Chinese government. It's well understood. So Alan Misson, who was a Victorian Liberal senator, and I put on morning tea for the Dalai Lama at the old Parliament House. And, uh, you know, I can't remember, let's say there were 20 parliamentarians attended and he came and made a nice little speech. It was, it was wonderful to have him coming out through the old entrance hall to the old parliament house. I took him over to a, a display case filled with argon gas as an inert gas in which is preserved a copy of the Magna Carta, our copy of the Magna Carta. Yeah. So I said, Your Holiness, may I just show you this document, which is really the foundation of our liberties and, just, you know, blah, blah. And he was obviously affected. And I don't say I saw a tear glisten in his eye, but he was obviously unexpectedly moved and showed it, which, you know, is, is unusual should be indifferent to all things, you know, Buddhist practice. But he's obviously very moved. I said, are you, are you all right, Your Holiness? He said, yes, he said, but I'm remembering the destruction of all our ancient manuscripts in the monasteries of Tibet. He could have added by the Chinese occupying forces. But it had triggered something in his mind obviously of great concern and great anguish for him, that the documents, I mean, we're 1215, the Magna Carta, AD. He'd be talking about manuscripts that probably go back 1215, what we saw BC. Yeah. Uh, it'd been preserved for millennia in their monasteries, <coughs> destroyed. What a remarkable thing. But, but nevertheless, even despite that, he advocates non-violence towards such terrible barbarians. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing position to hold and one that I think most people uh, misunderstand. Yeah. And so moving on to your, your, time, your time as ambassador. So when you were, you're going to the Holy See and the Netherlands... Can you tell me about presenting your credentials to Pope John Paul II? 
Presentation of credentials is something, well, that was fairly straightforward. I was with five or six other ambassadors in a great hall in, uh, in the Apostolic Palace uh, at the Vatican. And it was very interesting because when I presented my credentials to him, these are the letters from, I think it was Bill Hayden as Governor General, which you present as the representative of Australia to the Holy See. And His, uh, His Holiness, uh, you know, accepted them and made some comment about the fact I hope to visit Australia for the beatification of Mary McKillop. Oh, I said, and then he passed on. And then a Monsignor came scurrying up to me and said, we haven't told the Australian government that yet. So, so of course, when I went back to the office, I immediately put a cable together and told the Australian government. But um, that, that, was, that, that was just an initial presentation of credentials. The same happens in the Netherlands, of course, with, with Queen Beatrix. Are you thinking of when I said goodbye to him? No, no, no. I think I think we'll get on to that. But uh, okay, okay. Well, look, look. What was fascinating, of course, was that uh, for me, both both appointments fulfilled everything I wanted to be in a way. To the Netherlands, the International Court of Justice. Uh, I appeared on behalf of Australia in a couple of cases in a team, of course, of, of, of lawyers. Uh, and the international and the war crimes tribunal on the former Yugoslavia was just being established. This embodies um, an attempt then by the Security Council in relation to that particular conflict, that terrible civil war in the former Yugoslavia, to bring the common morality of humankind expressed in international humanitarian law to bear on that conflict to actually hold particular persons individually criminally responsible for massacres, etc. that occurred. Uh, Australia played a huge role in that. Uh, when I was Minister for Justice, uh, we had attempted to uh, uh, prosecute persons that was alleged come to Australia in the 19, mid to late 1940s uh, as refugees from war-torn Europe, but in fact had collaborated with the Nazis in Ukraine, for example, or Russia. This was what the claim was. We tried to prosecute them. We were not successful for various reasons I needn't go into. But it meant that when the Security Council established the War Crimes Tribunal in the former Yugoslavia, the only people in the world who had current experience of sending investigators, in this case to Ukraine, to Ukraine and Russia, to try to gather evidence, and then prosecution teams assembling that evidence into admissible evidence, and then trying to prosecute the case. The only people who could really do that were the Australians. So we sent our teams from the Australian Federal Police and the New South Wales Homicide Squad. They were the basis of the investigation teams sent by that tribunal into Yugoslavia to gather whatever they could. And then back in The Hague, the prosecution teams were led by an Australian, Graham Blewett, had the title of deputy prosecutor, but he actually drove it. So Australia played a huge part in sending, setting up that tribunal 
And then that experience then led to many nations coming together to create the International Criminal Court. I mean, we need to go into all that, but I'm just saying it was a very exciting time to be there at the genesis of this development in international law, which, um, you know, we're still in the early stages, early decades, but it's the first concerted worldwide attempt through the Security Council, through treaties like the ICC, to uh, really try to moderate the waging of war by embodying the principles of international humanitarian law, crimes against humanity, genocide, etc., in a format which allows for a criminal trial, individual responsibility found guilty, imprisoned. So that was all very exciting. Good time to be in the Hague. Yeah, because the that 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 whole international criminal court system, um, while it's it's had its its sort of birthing pains, um, it's now becoming quite a a strong institution, which is gaining gaining a bit of respect on the on the world stage. It'd probably help if the United States was more willing to uh, sign up to some of its articles, but it's it's being able to achieve some quite uh, impressive results, which 40 years ago would have seemed um, beyond the pale. I know. Well, look, I think it's, it's, it is early stages and there will be setbacks. And the major powers, of course, don't want anything to do with it. And the United States um, has been afraid, and it may be have some legitimacy, that charges will be made about the waging of, of something let's say, American peacekeepers even, in a particular theatre of conflict. And then, you know, the allegations will be made in in an attempt to get up to the commander-in-chief, you know, through the chain of command. And there's no way the United States is going to allow that any more than, you know, the president of China would allow. Yeah. Uh, This is just great power stuff, which can lead to the claim that, Okay, the ICC might be doing things, but it's basically in relation to uh, second or third tier nations in terms of global power, and um, mainly in Africa. So that's something to be worked through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's an interesting body, and and uh, it'll be interesting to see to see where it goes. But going over to your position at the Holy See. An initial question is, do you think that your objectivity as the Australian ambassador there was affected by your Catholic yeah. background? Well, look, there are, part, partly it's a, it, it's, a, it's a role which just proclaims a sort of relationship between Australia and the Holy See. Interesting, Mr Whitlam uh, established that embassy to the Holy See as a counterbalance politically, domestically in Australia, to his recognition of China. Ah, right. Yes. Anyway, that's another story. So partly it's that sort of uh, relationship. But the other big thing to to realise is that the Holy See has been operating as a uh, diplomatic political entity for millennia, at least since the time when it teamed up with the Roman Empire in the 4th century. 
So um, it's got a very well-experienced diplomatic service. And, for example, if the Australian government wanted to know what was happening in East Timor, it could send its embassy officials from Jakarta into East Timor, which was then under Indonesian occupation, and always those people from our embassy in Jakarta would be under the surveillance of military or security forces of the, of the Indonesian government. So it's very hard to gather you know, information about what was going on. However, the Bishop of, Bil of Dili, Bishop Bellow, was, of course, you know, every so often, I don't know, fortnightly, monthly, when occasion arose, would be sending back cables to the Vatican describing what was happening in East Timor. So I would go to the desk officer for East Timor, Indonesia, in the, in, in the Holy See, and ask for a briefing in relation to East Timor. And that official, Monsignor X, Y, or Z, uh, would give me whatever he wanted to give me. But it was, of course, a much more comprehensive picture of the human rights situation in East Timor. Because obviously the Bishop of Dili had his network quite properly. He understood what was happening in every parish throughout the country. So that intelligence gathering aspect of an ambassador's role in the, as an ambassador to the Holy See can be very useful to your home government. Yeah. So it's not all just you know attending, which was fantastic. Like the Easter ceremonies or whatever. Yeah. Yes, yeah, I think the the Vatican and the the organisation that it has been yeah. and 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 remains to be is is such a such a fascinating organisation because it's got people everywhere and and there's for want of a better word boots on the ground in nearly every every country in the world. Yeah. Yes. And it's and it's become a bit of an epicenter of promoting human rights and and trying to seek seek justice. Yeah, well, justice. so much depends on the personality of the incumbent of the as Bishop of Rome, successor of Saint Peter, celebrates mass only a few meters above the grave of Saint Peter. It's fantastic when you visit there. I mean the. Yeah, it is a fantastic diplomatic and, and, and international organisation, speaking in those terms alone. But, uh, you know, it is a bureaucracy and it can become somewhat self-serving in a way uh, or acting according to certain well-tried methods of promotion and, and organisation within the bureaucracy. What Pope Francis calls the danger is uh, in becoming Pope that you're exposed to what he called the leprosy of a feudal court. You know, uh, and I think uh, Cardinal Pell found when he took on the role of trying to reform the finances and the accountability and the transparency in relation to financial matters in, uh, in the Vatican that he found himself up against these sorts of forces which had been left to run their own show 
for decades, centuries, and didn't like an outsider, whether it was Cardinal Pell or, of course, this man from Argentina, George Bergoglio, uh, upsetting their, their, their method of acting. Yeah, the, the Southern Hemisphere was really, uh, was really taking over. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, isn't that what he said? On the balcony, you know, when Pope Francis walked out on the balcony at St. Peter's, we didn't know who he was. And, and after saying in that dramatic way, brothers and sisters, good evening, something like that. It's just a simple way. And then um, I think he said something along the lines of, you know, the, the cardinals have chosen a man from the, from the far corners of the earth, something like that. He didn't know that I was parish priest, of course, of the southernmost parish in Tasmania. <laughs> <laughs> but I wasn't chosen. Um, yeah, but he was. And they did it deliberately, but perhaps uh, didn't quite know what they were getting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, Holy I wonder Spirit, the Holy Spirit knew. And I suppose coming back to what we were talking about earlier, that, that Holy Spirit can just weave its way through and, and affect change in, in ways that people aren't really able to foresee or, um, or really understand until perhaps after the change has happened. This man is such a, uh, I don't say he does it as a PR stunt, far, far, far from it. But quite naturally, he does things which symbolise, by way of street theatre, what he's all about, this is Pope Francis. So just to go back to Pope John Paul II, in my great respect, I mean, his great encyclicals, Veritatis Splendor, Evangelium Vitae, and so on, wonderful documents. But I remember one of the joys of being an ambassador is, particularly when you're single, uh, you can take your parents to various functions or whatever. So mum and dad would come over during the Tasmanian winter and spend a couple of months with me in The Hague in the European, like summer or um, spring into summer and so on. So I remember taking them down to Rome for um, Easter. And amongst other things, we went to the Holy Thursday ceremony at, I think it was St. John Lateran, where Pope John Paul II washed the feet of 12 elderly priests mounted on a sort of a marble Davis, and he went along and washed their feet, you know, just a dab of water. So, I mean, it was all very moving and fantastic, and, you know, what a privilege for me to be there with mum and dad. And it, was, it was wonderful. What was more wonderful was to see Pope Francis only a week or so after being elected going to a, a prison for juvenile delinquents or young offenders anyway, washing the feet of these, and really washing them, uh, 12 young people, who were obviously on the wrong side of the wall, including two of them, I think, were women and one was a Muslim. Well, what a transformation. Just the imagery of that, the symbolism, uh, was fantastic. It was fantastic, and it hasn't stopped. And um, anyway, that's one of the joys of, of uh, 
I think of being a Catholic that somehow you know that the Holy Spirit will break through and uh, create a new dynamism or convey the dynamism of the resurrection into history. Yeah. 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 And so coming to the end of Yes, yes. Where are we now? Coming to the end of your ambassadorship. um, Oh, yes. You were there for for three or four years? Three. I cut it short by a year. Um, I had a four-year term, but... So do you want me to go through that story? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's that sort of famous story of you finishing up your time with JP2. So, yeah, that'd, that'd be good. Okay. Um, if there are any listeners still listening to this. <laughs> but survivor. if they're watching, if, if they can Google some stage, Caravaggio, C-A-R-R-A-V-A-G-I-O, something like that, Caravaggio, uh, was a... Renaissance painter, and uh, one of his um, paintings is in what they call the French Church in Rome. And uh, so I remember going in there and, and having a look when I was this is perhaps 1995, four, late four or five, and there's this marvellous painting called The Call of St. Matthew. And you've got our Lord walking in and pointing towards the money changers' table. You've got St. Matthew sitting there with two or three of his cronies counting the money. The gesture of our Lord, the hand gesture, when your listeners Google it and have a look, Caravaggio, the call of St. Matthew, is that of Adam in Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel. So this is the new Adam pointing at St. Matthew. Matthew is pointing to the guy next to him. In other words, saying, surely you don't want me. Surely you don't mean that I have to give up everything and follow you. Surely you really mean the guy next to me. But, of course, he eventually did get up and follow our Lord. You know, this, this outcast, this tax gatherer. Um, now, when I saw that, it really stirred something in me because I'd been procrastinating you know, for a long time about whether I should really become a priest. And I couldn't keep on putting it off and saying, well, no, but Lord, surely you mean somebody else. Somebody else can do the job. Uh, surely you don't mean me. So that was, that was, that was sort of bubbling along. And then in uh, Lent of 1996, I came across a poem by W.H. Auden, the English poet. Have you seen Three Weddings and a Funeral? Yeah. Okay. At the end of that film, uh, there's a great poem by W.H. Auden, Stop the Clocks. It's not that poem, but that's who he is, W.H. Auden. And a young poet had died at Oxford of an overindulgent lifestyle, let's say kindly. And um, his friends asked Auden to write a, you know, something nice about it, a eulogy, elegy, eulogy. And they thought it would be something like, this is how a young poet should die, living on the edge of every experience, you know, indulging everything, and this is where the muse is generated. But Auden was very angry. And he wrote a poem 
along these lines, I may have got it verb exactly, as though addressed to the young God. When you appear before the judgment seat of God, God will recite by heart the poems you could have written, and you will cry tears of shame. Well, that was so powerful. It's like a grenade had been lobbed at me. And I thought, what's the poem I still have to write? Wouldn't it be terrible to be on my deathbed, crying tears of shame for lack of courage to change and do what I knew I was meant to be doing, writing this poem of the priesthood. So that's when I had to let Alexander down and know that I was going to cut short my term and finish in September, I think it was, of 1996, or maybe a bit earlier. Anyway, so what that means is, to get to your point, is that you have to go, well, you're invited to visit the Pope as a sovereign, and you've got seven minutes with him to bid farewell. So I'm invited into his study, He's sitting at the table. Uh, he very graciously invited me to sit at the table along, at, uh, in a chair alongside him. And, of course, you're told it has to be a very bland conversation, nothing, nothing controversial, nothing new. So, you know, it starts off, uh, uh, Your Holiness, the Australian people, very pleased that you were able to visit Australia for the beatification of Mary McKellar. I was very pleased to go to Australia for the beatification of Mary McKillop. You know, one of those conversations. And honestly, I thought, how are we going to get through this? Seven uh, <laughs> minutes of formulaic. Well, well, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah, sure. Um, but I mean, a great honour. And I mean, here I am, a little boy from South Hobart, sitting alongside the Pope. I mean, it's, it's overwhelming. You're a bit tongue-tied anyway. And um, yes, even me, I know what you're thinking. But I was a bit tongue-tied there. And you, you've got to go on with this conversation of a bland kind. Then he said, and where is your next posting, Your Excellency? He couldn't care if it's New York or Timbuktu. It was part of the standard conversation. I said, well, in fact, Your Holiness, um, I'm, I'm planning to study for the priesthood. You? He said, yeah, yeah. you? I said, my God, he's got a dossier on me. This is finished. <laughs> And uh, but he said, um, he said, this is what we call a late vocation. I said, no, Your Holiness, it's an early vocation, long deferred. <laughs> and he smiled and uh, reached across. And that week, a medal had been struck for the 50th anniversary of his ordination as a priest. And he handed me a copy of that uh, medal which was very moving because what interested him, he couldn't care where I was going to be ambassador to Montreal or Cape Town. I mean, that didn't interest him. But he was interested in, in the priesthood. Basically, he's a priest. And um, so that was very moving and a nice way to finish, you know, my term as ambassador to the Holy See. Yeah. You, you said that you always knew that you, you wanted to become a priest or that that was constantly in your mind. What were sort of the thoughts or, or even the feelings that were going through your, your mind or your heart that was leading you in that direction? 
Look, I think, well, it, it's Genesis. Like, like, like back in, you know, being a little boy, Catholic boy in a Christian brother's school. So, you know, it's sort of, it's there. It's an expectation, you know. They were looking for bright young boys to become priests. I mean, that was the ethos of the time. So I suppose the seed was there. Uh, but then I studied law and then, but it was still there, bubbling along. So that's why I switched to theology, basically. I knew, you know, it was a fascinating area and I wanted to get into it. But then back and you get involved in public life and it's all very exciting and, 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 and quite proper and a good thing to do. It's, it is a vocation to be a politician, you know, with, with certain values that you try to bring into the national arena. So I don't regret that at all, but it was always there in the back of my mind. And then, of course, the Hague and the Holy See. I mean, it was all, it was all going in the right direction, you might say. But the crunch came and I had to make a decision. I was nearing 50 and uh, I know it seems old to you, but relatively young to me now. And I, uh, I, I knew I had to make a decision. And, and that painting and the poem were crucial stimulants, stimuli for that decision. Yeah. Where it came from, well, have we been talking about the Holy Spirit prompting, <laughs> uh, goading, um, the Hound of Heaven stuff, you know, that poem, the Hound of Heaven, always yapping at your heels. And eventually, you know, you give in. Yeah. And so from there you went to to st- back to study theology at, at Cambridge. Is that right? I hate to say it, but yes. Um, to a Cambridge graduate of note, <laughs> distinction. Uh, yeah, well, I've known the Dominicans for years, uh, the Order of Preachers, the Dominicans. Uh, my best friends at Oxford when I was at undergraduate student there were Timothy Radcliffe and David Sanders. David died of COVID five or six weeks ago. Timothy Radcliffe, of course, the great leader of the Dominican Order, master for many years, still still there. So my bishop in Tasmania, Eric Darcy, said, look, it's a bit of a hard transition to go from the embassy straight into you know, an Australian seminary uh, why don't you do your first year at least in transition with the Dominicans in England? So I was based in Cambridge and often went to Oxford for some other tutorials with them. And then I went to Rome for a term, only a term, at the English College because of the disparity between the English and Australian academic years. You know, it was time to fill in. Then back to the seminary in Melbourne. And um, then I was ordained in 2000. And, and since becoming a priest, you have, have you joined an order or are you... Um, oh, no, I'm a parish priest. I'm a secular, what they call a secular. Yeah. 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 And you've been based in, in Hobart that, that whole time? Yes. Various parishes. My first parish was Bridgewater, Gagebrook, basically, which is a like a housing commission Difficult areas, socio-economic difficulties, but I already had a bit of an in there because I'd had—I don't think the bishop knew—but I'd had my 
electoral office out there um, for, for three or four years as I was finishing it. And my electoral assistant, Harry Quick, became the member for Franklin Federal East. So I had a pretty good network out there, particularly amongst the women, because I'd got a, a women's refuge and, or centre or something like that at one stage. And the women hold those sort of neighbourhoods together. So that, that was a good start for my uh, parish life. Then to Sandy Bay, which included the university, and uh, then Vicar General. Oh, no, then I went down to um, Signet, which is the southernmost parish in Australia, where, once again, you don't... When you go into a parish, the thing is to try to find out what the Holy Spirit wants you to do there. I mean, the, the bishop thinks he's sending you, but, in fact, it could be the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so you've got to work out what to do. In Signet, I found that the church there, the little church, is, in fact, built like a Spanish chapel in California by some strange quirk, which I need to go into now, the Scorch St. James. So I immediately thought of uh, the great pilgrimage, uh, the pilgrimage to Santiago, to Compostela, across northern Spain, uh, to St. James Cathedral there. So I've organised a, a pilgrimage every year, over two or three days, um, through the Huon Valley to St. James Church in Signet. We carry a big icon of St. James and all that sort of stuff. But you've got to find something in your parish which is true to the parish and expresses a form of Catholicism. In this case, we coincided with the folk festival in Signet, the biggest folk festival in Tasmania, one of the biggest in Australia, and I called it folk religion. You know, going on, coming into the into Signet itself at the end of the pilgrimage, carrying this icon and greeted by a Spanish singer saluting the icon, you know, all that sort of thing, which is which is folk religion in the in the Mediterranean style. Now I'm in South Hobart. Oh, you'll be interested in this, perhaps, I don't know. So you'll find out now the big problem in Tasmania two or three years ago, and it's still the case, is homelessness in the sense of people finding it difficult to find accommodation and or suffering severe rental stress. So at the back of the church at South Hobart, there was a primary school built in the 1970s, which demography changed, so it had been closed down and just rented out a couple of floors for office space. Didn't generate much revenue, but it was it was useful for the parish. So we were going to renew the lease for, for that, on that basis. And then I thought, well, what would Pope Francis say? Well, the upshot is we've changed it into eight affordable housing units for women over 55. Women over 55 having been identified by the housing, the State Department dealing with housing. As a, as a very vulnerable group in southern Tasmania to rental stress for various reasons. It might be fleeing domestic abuse at one extreme, but they've just had a very low-paying job. They finished their employment. They're 60 years of age. They haven't got the assets or the income to pay the, the rents that were being asked. So we've got eight women living there in very sunny 
secure, safe, renovated you know, lounge, bedroom, kitchen, ensuite. Now, what, what have we called the apartments, you're asking? Well, here's the answer. Buenos Aires Apartments. <laughs> Named after the birthplace of the, the place where, of course, Francis was Archbishop. And um, it also means, of course, fresh air or good air. So after the storms and tempests of life, these women, you know, can breathe fresh and invigorating air. You mentioned the rhetoric at the opening. Um, so uh, once again, you know, you find something that the parish can do wherever you're appointed and um, that's appropriate to that parish in that situation. Have you found that in your political life and also in your life as a parish priest, the the real uh, goal or, I suppose, higher virtue of, of both of those positions is to serve your constituency or your parish? Have you found that there's a, a distinction in the way that you go about serving your parish or your constituency in the two different roles? Because they are both based on, on the service of service to others. Yeah, well, my, my standard talk is from ministry to ministry. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, I mean, obviously, but I mean, um, it's pretty cheap. But anyway, there it is. Um, uh, cheap and cheerful. Yeah, 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 cheap and cheerful. Um, ministry to ministry. So, I mean, there is the common factor. I think you are trying to serve people in different ways, but how you go about it, you know, obviously in politics, the scale was much, much, much bigger and the possibility of changing things was much more uh, a definite responsibility because you could change things. In the church, when you're just a humble parish priest like me, part of that could be an in inverted commas, <laughs> um, you find that, you know, you can't do much on the big scale. So you, you do what you can at your assigned parish as well as you can and build up a relationship with the people you've got and, and the community. You never know where that's going to lead, you see, but you do what you can as best you can in the field of endeavour you've been given and then leave, leave it, you know, for the three or four generations for the Holy Spirit to lead somewhere else with that, with that initiative that you may have taken 40, 50 years ago. Well, there are there's some pretty inspiring words that can hopefully uh, affect a bit of change in in our listeners. So so hopefully they, they'll be able to take that on board. But Father Tate, I think that's that's pretty good. I'd hate to take much more of your time. You're obviously a very, very busy person and you've got more more things to do on the back of the, the Holy Spirit's desires. Yeah, so. Well, I was 75 last week. Oh, well, those, uh, yeah. So, but as I said at my luncheon, some friends gave me, like Mr. Putin, I'm looking forward to the next 16 years. <laughs> yeah, and beyond. So you've got to be future oriented to see what what opens up. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. But that's that's a good place to uh, to finish off. I think. So, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, that's been a that's been a really really interesting and. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah, fascinating conversation. You, you've lived a, a, an extraordinary life of, uh, of service to others um, and, uh, and it's a real inspiration for, for me at least and I hope um, others see that as well. Thank you very much, Jack. Thanks for the opportunity and thanks to your listeners for persevering through this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, those that are still here, um, well done. Yeah, yeah thank you and, very much. Uh, so, yeah, thanks, Father, and, um, and thanks, everyone, for listening. <laughs>